welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. We um, are going to have our essay speaker come up, and it is my absolute honor to introduce to you my brother in the fellowship, Mr. Wilty. You know, when Brad asked me if I wanted to speak on Saturday at the SASNON conference, um, at first, I was a little nervous about it, still am, but uh, the truth is that last year, my wife got to speak at this portion, and he said, well, this would be your chance for a rebuttal. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and after thinking about that for a while, and thinking about what she had talked about, I thought, you know, we've probably had just about enough of a guy behind a podium saying, wrong, not true, fake news. So... I am not going to talk about anything she said because everything she said last year was true. If you don't believe it, look up the recordings and uh, it all happened. It's like Shelby said, so how did I get up here? Man, you know, like I didn't think I'd ever be up here. I thought I'd be on a red carpet, accepting an Oscar, maybe a Nobel Peace Prize. But it turns out uh, I'm at SAS non-conference, you know, and that's how I continue to learn that uh, my higher power Got a great sense of humor. He keeps bringing it, you know. And uh, my sponsor reminds me that recovery is nothing more than ego deflation. Sometimes it's like the slow letting of air out of a tire, and other times it's a bang. And so I think maybe this is one of those bangs. You know, um, I am up here talking about really uh, the actions of love, but as the, the problem in essays states, you know, that we were first addicts and then we were love cripples. So the truth is that I don't know a lot about love. You know, I wasn't trained that way. And so for you to understand what I know about love, you first have to know what I know about fear, you know. And I didn't grow up uh, knowing a lot about love. To tell the truth, I grew up in suburban St. Louis. I was the youngest son, uh, older brother that I was never really close with. Uh, Mom and dad are still married to this day. And our house was very monotone. You know, we didn't talk about much, not a lot of problems. And we subscribed to the whole idea that if we just didn't talk about it long enough, those problems would just go away. This was further compounded by the fact that I grew up uh, around a lot of other families that were Catholic, Jewish, and Mormon, and we were the lone Southern Baptist family. 
So that kind of further drove the outsider, and, you know, I attended church regularly, um, and early on got saved because I was scared of hell about uh, fire and brimstone, figured I'd buy some fire insurance, and uh, tried to explain that to uh, a Jewish guy or a Catholic, you know, and they just didn't understand, but it further kind of drove that I was somehow different, that I was somehow not the same as them. And so uh, I also grew up a latchkey kid, our neighborhood friends. We spent a lot of time alone without adult supervision. And uh, growing up in suburban St. Louis was a lot like, say, Brentwood or Franklin, where there was a lot of disposable income. But all that time alone, I um, started experimenting with uh, drinking beer from basement fridges about 12 years old. And uh, then the next year, about 13 years old, one of my uh, friends stole some pot from his older brother. And by 13, I was already drinking and smoking dope. But uh, all those experiences didn't compare with what happened later that same summer. I was 13 when Joe Leslie brought out a stack of Playboys in his basement. We were underneath a pool table, and there was me and three other neighborhood friends. And, man, I'm telling you what, like, you know, looking at those centerfolds, if I was a good enough artist in 2018, I swear I could recreate those uh, centerfolds. That's how much of an impact that had on my life, you know. And I remember walking back to my house after that experience. And like I said, I'd already experimented with alcohol and pot, but man, here I had something. I didn't know what it was, but the truth was that I had something that was no smell, no hangover, and whatever it did to me, man, no one could ever take that away from me. And this was the beginning of, man, that was power for me. I had something here. And guess what? I walked back into my house, and I just remember thinking to myself, I'm less scared. Uh, I don't know what this is, but there's going to be a lot more of it. Because, like, I just had a connection there. I was less scared. And who can't blame a 13-year-old boy for finding something that made him less scared? That was further compounded by later that summer. Um, I was camping out where my friend Matt McLean, we were setting up a tent in his backyard. We were going to have a camp out in his backyard, and uh, we were setting up the tent, and Tina Adams, who was his next-door neighbor, and I'm totally breaking anonymity there by the last names, but so if any of you know Matt or Tina, I apologize, but um, anyway, like, uh, Tina was a year older, and uh, she came over and noticed we were setting up our tent, and she asked us, what are you guys doing around midnight? Well, turns out Matt and I didn't have any plans, but um, so uh, she said, why don't you meet me by our gate, or the gate for a privacy fence at midnight? So Matt and I had no idea what was going on, but we were in. And so uh, we set our little Casio wristwatch alarm clocks for 11.52, 11.53, and he even got a wind-up alarm clock for 11.55, because we were not going to miss this date. And so promptly at midnight, you know, and it was July in Missouri, we I didn't know the protocol, so we went and knocked on the side gate, and sure enough, right on time, uh, the gate opens, and there was Tina, and Tina had a full-length fur coat on, which was odd, because it was Missouri in July, and it was hot, <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, she opened up her uh, coat, and she was completely naked, and she'd asked Matt and I if we'd ever seen a grown woman naked, and we both replied, no, but this is awesome. And uh, she invited us for the next short while to, like, touch. And, and from what I remember about it, like, as scary as it was, it ended very abruptly. She shut her uh, coat and closed the gate, and it was over. And so walked back to Matt's tent, and we never talked about it ever again. 
So I had two experiences now, very close together, that were super powerful. I didn't know what to do with those. So I put them in a little place inside my mind that I put stuff where, this is where I'm going to put something where I, I, I know I can't talk about it, but I'm going to put it in this place. And that was the beginning of secrets for me. And for me, secrets became power. And so, you know, you fast forward really like that was like a real misconnection. And the truth was, man, it was almost real, but it wasn't. But I had a place now to put something inside my head where things just didn't make sense. And so, you know, you fast forward into junior high and, you know, I had girlfriends, but they never really kind of compared to that centerfold or that experience with Matt, you know, and Tina. So, like, I had this weird dichotomy. I was trying to push boundaries and oftentimes go as far as, you know, girls would let me go. And it was a string of relationships that really didn't work. And uh, when I was uh, in high school, you know, I, I discovered porn and masturbation. I thought that that was pretty cool. And I thought that... Uh, one point in time, like the jig was up when I was a junior in high school, and I found a really convenient place to hide porn between my mattress and box springs. I'm sure no one here has ever done that. So uh, one time I came home, and uh, a Hustler magazine that I had somehow procured uh, was on my pillow. And on my pillow, there was also a yellow sticky note. And again, if I could get enough articles, I could recreate the sticky note. And it was my dad's handwriting, that, and it said, don't ever bring this trash into my house again. And so I threw away the hustler, and I thought to myself that, man, tomorrow morning, finally, I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on in my head. Finally, my dad's going to give me the birds and the bees talks, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on, and I'm going to be able to finally have a connection. Well, Saturday came and went. And I'm 47 years old, and I'm still waiting to have that talk. <laughs> so, you know, as my ego and pride grows, so did my disease. And uh went off to college, and college was, uh, the way I look at it now, more of a nightmare than anything else. It was a string of serial relationships, girlfriends, that I was not faithful to any of them. And I knew, must have known something was a little off, because by the time I was a senior, I dated one girl for a whole semester. And right between uh the fall break and what or break between Christmas break, my senior year, she announced she was pregnant. And so um, we talked about it for a while, and she decided that uh, the best thing would be to get an abortion. And so she did this, that between uh, the, the semesters there, and we never talked about it. But I had a place to put it, <laughs> that little place where I put stuff that you just don't talk about. And if you don't put it, talk about it long enough, it just goes away. Man, uh, looking back on that, I'm just really sad that I didn't have anyone to talk about. I was so lonely, so trying to figure out life for myself that I didn't know any better, you know. And uh, after college, I wound up uh, moving in with a girl when we decided that we were going to play house for a while. And that was almost real, and it worked for a little while. And then uh, we were together about a year and a half, and she announced she was pregnant. Well, I knew what to do with this, and so I quickly suggested that maybe an abortion would be a, a good idea, and so uh, second abortion, and put it in that neat little place where I put stuff, and that closet was getting a little crowded at this point in time, and uh, we, decided, we had problems, but we decided that maybe getting engaged would take care of those problems, got engaged, still have problems. Then we decided like getting married would take care of that, got married, still have problems. And so for uh, about two months, I think I was faithful, and then I started uh, having sex outside marriage very quickly, and within a year and a half, we were divorced. 
I never got caught, but I look back on that, you know, and only my addict and I, we were so smart, we just thought, you know, uh, I was too smart to get caught. And so, moving on to my 30s, my 30s were going to be like my 20s, except with money and single. And man, uh, the internet had just came in, discovered internet pornography, chat rooms, hookup sites, and now my acting out, you know, I was crossing, you know, gender lines, crossing uh, couples lines. It was, it was crazy. It was, but I had this whole, separate life that I was juggling between real life. And so I had friends, and then I had this other life. And this other life, it was almost like I had this superpower I couldn't tell anybody about. But it was what I needed to do to survive and make sense of life. And again, I must have sensed something was a little bit wrong because I decided that, uh, man, uh, the thing that would fix me was to get married again. But this time, I would marry Tammy, uh, who already had a year and a half old son. And that's what I needed to fix me. An instant family. And man, like that, you know, and so I dove into that and we dated for a year and got married and for a while it was great. It really was, you know, like, and I, and it worked right up to the point that it didn't. And slowly but surely, the idea of more, better, and different crept back in. And before I knew it, you know, I'm acting out, you know, I'm uh, meeting strangers in hotel rooms, apartments, houses, uh, business trips. It was crazy, and uh, I was so small, you know, I thought I was so smart, you know, and the disease was progressing that uh, in late September 2010, uh, my acting out, I contracted chlamydia, which, man, uh, for a married guy, that's kind of hard to explain, so I figured I would go to a dock in the box, get treated for cash, and I'd put that in that nice little secret filing place where I put all my other secrets and everything would be okay. It was until December 1st of 2010 when... Tammy came home at lunch to let our new puppy out, and something just wasn't right. She'd found a weird email on my new iPhone just the night before, and she walked by my uh, laptop that was still up, and she swiped the pad, and up came a Yahoo Messenger chat box. And I swear to you guys, I deleted Yahoo Messenger the night before, but I don't know how it got there. Nothing happens in God's uh, world by mistake, you know, and... So she began chatting with people I was acting out with. And uh, then I'm at work, and I get a phone call, and she uh, says, you know, um, hey, uh, you need to come home, um, and you have some explaining to do. And she gave the screen name that I was using at the time, and just because I'm deshaming my I was rock hard at yahoo.com. And so she's like, yeah, thank you. And so uh, she said, you know, you got a lot of explaining to do about this screen name. And so... I was so tired of the life I was living, the double life, that I decided on that drive from Cool Springs to Brentwood that I was going to come clean. So I got home and walked in the door and told her about 5% of what was going on. And the subsequent freakout convinced me that there's no way in hell I'm going to tell the other 95%. You know, And so uh, we got an emergency uh appointment with a therapist and uh, the very next day we got in front of this poor therapist and he wasn't a CSAT but he was a, a nice guy and he asked me to explain what was going on and I gave him about another 10% of what was going on and he very gently and very kindly said you might be dealing with an addictive life, uh, an addictive cycle. News to this guy but uh, and then he looked at Tammy and said and if he is an addict they never tell everything the first time. And I was like I'm not really sure whose side you're on here, but it ain't mine. And so, uh, it, it, and about that time, you know, I was able to at least have the courage to talk about 
the chlamydia and that it might be a great idea for her to get tested. And in all seriousness, it was one of the worst days of you know, my life. But he also um, did me one of the biggest favors of my life in that he pulled out a white book and he told me about SA. Whew. If I'm really honest, man, I was the last person in that room that knew I had a problem. Pretty obvious to both the therapist and my wife, but to this guy, <laughs> I didn't believe it, man. So I decided, man, that my ass was on fire. I was in a lot of pain. I was tired of lying. So I decided I'd give this whole essay thing a try. So I showed up for my newcomers meeting, not by my own enlightened self-interest, but because really that's what good Christian boys do when they get caught. I'm trying to save my marriage and get my wife off my ass. And so I went to the uh, essay at my newcomers meeting and... The only thing I can tell you is that what I experienced was when I realized today what I've been looking for my whole life. That was healthy connection. I never had that before. These strangers had just told versions of my story that were more than mere coincidence. They mentioned ways of acting and thinking that I was only familiar with in that secret, dark place that I never told anybody about. Man, I began uh, attending SA meetings regularly and learning about the disease model of SA. I began to discard the idea that my disease was a moral issue. It had nothing to do with right or wrong. <laughs> Morality for me and my disease is anything good is what lets me act out. Anything bad is what prevents me from acting out. That's morality in my disease. It doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me an addict. Man, that was the insanity of my addict. You know, I experienced some relief when I got into SA, began uh, attending regular meetings, making phone calls. My wife even signed me up for a sex addiction workshop, and uh, I let her, because at this point in time, she was more than happy to run my recovery for me, and I'm just lazy enough to let her do it. <laughs> so I attended the uh, workshop, and I got some more head knowledge about the disease of sex addiction. And the truth is, within four months of me attending that uh, sex addiction workshop, I was acting out again. But this was a new level of insanity that I hadn't experienced before. Now I'm paying a therapist $125 an hour, going to meetings, lying about my sobriety date, lying to people I'm calling to, and it was, quite frankly, exhausting. Thank God it only lasted five months when I was caught yet again. And at this point in time, my therapist suggested that I might want to seek outside help with some treatment. And this is, again, how I know uh, God's got a great sense of humor, because while I was acting out, my addict suggested a lot of things, but saving $20,000 for therapy was not one of them. So uh, I had to take out a 401k loan to uh, pay for this uh, stint in treatment. And as I was filling out the loan paperwork for my 401k, we often hear in the program that the desperation of, you know, the gift of desperation is a gift. And I was at that point in a lot of pain. I was brutally honest. But the intake therapist at the treatment center I was going to gave me a 10-page sexual history document. They encouraged me to handwrite it. And so I handwrote it. Brutally honest, all my acting out behaviors, whole history, no holds barred. I scanned it, put it on a desktop on my computer, scanned the 401k documents, put it on my desktop, and I'm emailing my banker and an intake therapist. So I send the emails off, and about an hour later, the intake therapist calls me and thanks me for the loan application. <clears throat> but asked me where the sexual history document is. Remember what I said about Sam Popper? 
this was a pop. <laughs> so, but like I look at that now, it was just preparing me to prepare, you know, to talk to non-essays about my story, because I've already done it, you know, like it was, <laughs> this is just talking about it, like, because I'm sure that water cooler talk, <laughs> really interesting, like this guy needs a loan, bad. <laughs> so... <laughs> True story. Like you said, you can't make this shit up. But so I go off to treatment, and in, in all seriousness, uh, treatment was one of the best things that uh, really happened to me. And by the grace of God, through some really, really talented therapists, I was able to make peace with two aborted babies. I was able to disclose my wife in a healthy way. And I was able to realize, man, like, I really do have a disease. And without help, this disease doesn't want just to hurt me. This disease wants to kill me. And that's a reality that, you know, it, it sounds pretty harsh. It's just true, man. This is the way the disease works. It's an ass kicker. But when I returned from treatment, you know, I began working the steps now. I got a sponsor. I actually started taking directions, started making phone calls, taking phone calls. And, you know, uh, slowly, really slowly, um, I didn't have to go to meetings anymore. I got to go to meetings. Man, I got to take phone calls. And those are gifts that you don't understand until you've been in so much pain that you realize the only thing that uh, saves all the pain is connection with other addicts. That's the only thing that works in the moment. And making and taking calls is just part of the medicine I need to take on a daily basis. And I, I, need, I still do that today. You know, And I began to live happy, healthy, and sober 24 hours at a time. I also began, you know, to find a new conception of God, that God wasn't mad at me anymore. Mad at me anymore. In fact, he was hog-ass wild about me. And he loved me exactly for who I am, essay and all. You know, in recovery and sobriety, I get to uh, experience the acronym sober, which is son of a bitch, everything's real. And uh, it's true, man, like, you know, that uh, I have all these feelings that I used to cover up by acting out. Hell, I'd act out when I was, you know, happy. I'd act out when I was sad. I'd just act out to act out. But now, like, you know, that uh, I had all these feelings, I had to actually deal with them and live with them in sobriety. And the gift of all this is that, and that talk about the actions of love, is that I get to feel my feelings, but I do not feel them in isolation. I get to feel them healthy and unhealthy with other recovering individuals, and that's a gift that I hope everyone here gets to experience. You know, uh, it just always just blows my mind, man, when I get to bring the inside out and I get to tell the crazy stuff that goes inside my head. And, uh, you know, so far, no one's got up and ran out of the room just yet, but I keep telling myself, maybe next time, but uh, everyone just shakes their head and generally says, you know, me too. And that is the healthy connection. That's what I needed to experience. I needed to experience love instead of fear. And I didn't get that before I came into uh, SA. And, you know, I've had to learn how to reconnect with my wife. In my disease, I've taken so much from her, you know, but I had to learn to reconnect with her in a healthy way. We even had to learn to talk about the things we never talked about, which is hard. Still is. We even had to learn how to um, have sex again, which was, you know, kind of exciting and weird. Still is. But uh, at the same time, like, it's healthy. It's not always perfect, but it's real. So what does it look like now? What does it look like to take the actions of love? In the time I have left, I'll just give you a, one quick example. And Tam and I have talked about this. And so something we don't talk about a lot, you know, in SA is actual sex with our wives, you know, healthy sex. And this happened just a couple of weeks ago, and 
we have two boys, 11 and 17, and got them to bed. And it was, you know, it was one of those nights where uh, they were in bed and everything was good. And it was a good time to connect sexually with my wife. And everything was beautiful. It was just like it should be. And right in the middle of everything that was going on, I heard a noise and I turned over my shoulder and I saw the back of my 11-year-old boy walking out of the bedroom. They don't have a man. I keep looking on the white book on what to do when this happens, but (laughs) it's not there. (laughs) But what I do know, though, is in that moment, though, like that, uh, I didn't know what to do. And they did tell me, but uh, I did the only thing that, you know, you guys have taught me to do, which is take the actions of love. And so we both muttered a quick prayer. And I went upstairs, and I got to tell you guys, like this is a sexaholic. I've walked into houses, apartments, uh, hotel rooms with complete strangers without fear. But walking upstairs was 10,000 miles of a terrifying journey. I walked into that room, and I was more scared to go to an 11-year-old boy's room and talk about what he had just seen than I was to act out with all those people that I'd acted out with. And what happened next was... A beautiful example of what God does for me, what I can't do for myself, but um, we talked a little bit about what happened, and his comment was, so I came in at a bad time. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, but what was, in that moment, like, it was beautiful, and like, you know, he, he had a couple questions, and we just, it was simple stuff, guys, you know, it wasn't rocket science, but he gave me a hug and said, love you, Dad. And in that moment, what I realized was that I have no idea what that kid's life's going to turn around, turn out like. I have no idea. But I do know this. I will not leave him alone. He's not going to get a sticky note. He's going to get his dad. And I'm probably not going to do it perfectly. But at the same time, I know that he's not going to be alone. And that's how I grew up. For most of it was isolated, unworthy, alone, and afraid. I can tell you that the actions of love I took that day were different than what I got. And I didn't have any of that before I came in here. I'm just really grateful that, you know, I get to experience healthy spiritual connection. And that's what I've wanted all my life. And that's what is the ass kicker about this disease is it is so close to the real thing. It's just one degree off. But it's not. Do the work of the 12 steps, through taking a lot of calls, through going to a lot of meetings, I'm able to experience that real healthy connection. And then sometimes I can actually give that back to my family, and those closest to me. And for that, I'll never be sufficiently grateful. Thanks, I'm Will. I love you guys. Y'all are awesome. And I just heard my story, and I'm amazed at how that happens. I'm a female, and I just heard my story. I didn't have the email thing about the broker and the... uh, Didn't have that, but, you know, I still heard my story. And y'all are such an encouragement. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy to have everybody here this weekend. Thank you so much for being here. This was a great event. Y'all have a good time? I have asked my sister, Jessie, to come up and read the promises for us before we leave. Man, 
I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk. <sighs> Promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Thanks, Jesse. Um, and I have asked Sarah to come up and read the gifts of the Essanon program. Sarah? When we approach the process of recovery with honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to apply the principles of the 12 steps to our lives, we will soon begin to see the rewards. We will become able to surrender our self-defeating behavior. We will find that we have the strength and insight to make good choices for ourselves. Our ability to act positively on behalf of our health, families, jobs, and bank accounts will amaze us. We will find that others are doing things for themselves, which we thought we had to do for them. Our ability to give and receive love will expand tremendously, and we will become increasingly available for loving relationships with others. We will recover the feeling of joy. We will become more honest with ourselves and experience a new comfort in our intimate relationships. We will feel the security that arises from true fellowship with others in the program, knowing that we are loved and accepted just as we are. Feelings of failure and inadequacy will be replaced by self-confidence and independence of spirit. We will no longer expect other people to provide us with an identity or a sense of self-worth. We will find the courage to be true to ourselves. We will know peace of mind and feel a stronger connection with the higher power of our understanding and our hope will turn to faith that God is really working in our lives as we explore the wonders of serenity, dignity, and emotional growth. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, so everybody take a big, deep, cleansing breath. Swallow it down, because <laughs> you made it. This is the SOS Marathon. We hope to see you again next year. What we're going to try to do now is make a big circle all the way around this room, so we may need to do a row down that way. Yes? Oh, yes, would you do that?
Thank you. We're going to, uh, we have some recordings. Oh, I'm sorry. Leave your lanyards. Wait. Okay, God, I'm sorry about that. Um, your lanyards go in the basket. Is that right, Tina? Two big baskets on the table. Please leave your lanyards so we can use them again. Donald. Yeah, if you want to keep what you've been given, hang around and help clean up. That'd be great. And we do have some recorded sessions that uh, Preston's going to give us the information on. So we've recorded several of the sessions, uh, and everything in the worship center was recorded. A couple of uh, several Essanon uh, recordings and several upstairs. Uh, I'm going to be sending out an email to everybody that registered. Uh, so hopefully, if you registered, you gave us your good email address. Be expecting an email. It'll have instructions and the website information and all that. If you have a podcast app on your phone, you can you can go ahead and get it. It's called the Daily Reprieve. Search for that. You'll see a silver uh, 24-hour chip. Uh, that's where it will be, po- will be posted up there within the next couple of days. I've got to clean the audio up and get it up there. So hopefully this week it'll be out there. But I'll send an email to everybody with instructions as well. So if you haven't given your email to some of uh, to when you registered, uh, catch somebody and we'll figure out how to get it. And uh, Brad or Vicky or me or somebody, and we'll get that get it out to you. Okay, let's circle up. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.